Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? There are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States. This show is going to address things that can be fixed and how we will talk to victims of wrongful arrests and convictions, witnesses, people involved in the judicial process, and try to create an understanding that our current judicial system is not truth and justice for all. And that everyone needs to be aware this widespread problem in our country does not discriminate against race, religion, sex, or nationality. Anyone can become a victim to the judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutor, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. Today, I am super excited. We have attorney Terry Heimball as a guest to share her knowledge and expertise re- regarding wrong, wrongful convictions, PCRAs, and the law. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. I know you're extremely busy, so I appreciate you taking the time. My Terry, pleasure. I I know I've known you for many years, and I know you are in the trenches daily working on your client's behalf on wrongful convictions, police misconduct, civil rights cases. How did you get started with this and what led to your passion of taking on these types of cases? Well, I started uh, considering civil rights as a profession when I graduated from law school and I got a legal master's degree in international human rights law. And I realized when I was working with Amnesty International that we had a lot of civil rights and human rights issues that needed to be addressed domestically. Uh, Most specifically, I went to Mecklenburg State Prison uh, to interview a death row inmate. And one of the guards who was walking me to the, the area where I could see my client was very glibly telling me about how they had participated in various pilot programs uh, where they're paid by pharmaceutical companies to essentially test pharmaceuticals and, and chemicals and other sprays on inmates. I'm from Colorado originally, and I did not come from any type of background uh, that was involved in criminal justice. I had never, my goodness, I'd never seen an inmate, much less, I don't think I'd ever even gotten a speeding ticket. So when I went to Mecklenburg and I saw that this was happening, I thought, wow, I need to devote myself domestically to what was happening, uh, most specifically in the prisons, and that spread to uh, with the police department because, of course, one leads to the other. Uh, I came to Philadelphia from Washington, D.C., where I got my master's, my legal master's degree, specifically in the early 90s because at the time, if you wanted to go to where the problem was, uh, where I would be most needed. So I came to Philadelphia because at the time it was either there or L.A., and, and I'm definitely an East Coast sort of girl. So I, I plugged my, brought my family up from D.C. and basically opened my own shingle doing civil rights work. 
specifically prisoner civil rights police misconduct. And the, the starting about 10 years later, doing uh, criminal appellate work. It's all constitutional law. Uh, one is the domestic side of it. The other, I mean, it's the uh, civil side of it. One of it is the uh, criminal side of it. Uh, but it's still constitutional law. And uh, I started doing uh, criminal appeals. And since that time, pretty much do exclusively homicide appeal. That's awesome. I think the only thing you missed in there is you could have went to Chicago, but I'm glad you stayed in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not I, a little too cold for me. Yeah, definitely. Can, so I know you do a lot of PCRA work, and can you explain to the listeners what PCRA stands for and how that process works? Sure. First of all, once you're convicted, your first appeal is called a direct appeal, and that is usually an appeal to the Superior Court and sometimes to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, not always. Once you do the direct appeal, the direct appeal is limited to uh, issues related to how the prosecutor may have committed misconduct and to errors that the trial judge or trial court committed. When that has been reviewed by the Superior Court and Supreme Court, you then have the right to go back to the trial judge who is now sitting in PCRA or post-conviction court uh, for what's known as a collateral appeal, also known as a PCRA appeal after the Post-Conviction Relief Act. During the PCRA appeal, you are raising issues related to your own attorney's ineffective assistance of counsel. You're guaranteed effective assistance of counsel under the Sixth Amendment of both the U.S. and the Pennsylvania Constitution. So it's very important that during the PCRA process, if you've got any concerns that your counsel didn't call appropriate witness, didn't ask for the appropriate jury charge, didn't make a timely objection, there's about 101 different ways that you can prove ineffective assistance of counsel. Those are the times at the PCRA process where you have to assert that. Once you are done with your first level of state appeals, and again, after the PCR process, that gets appealed to the Superior Court and possibly to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court again. When you're done with all that, you technically are not entitled to any additional state appeals. The only time that you're allowed to get back into court once you've already uh, time-barred for your once-state timely appeals is uh, under three circumstances. Uh, evidence of uh, new prosecutorial misconduct, uh, government interference, uh, new evidence, which I'll discuss in a minute, or a change in the law, which is precedential. Uh, most of the PCRA petitions that I've been dealing with lately are either first-timely PCRA petitions where all the claims of ineffectiveness are raised or what we call new evidence PCRA petitions. And new evidence is evidence that was not available or known about at the time of the trial that has since become available and known about and that was obtained within reasonable diligence that could have ultimately change the, the determination of the, ver of the jury's verdict or the, the court's verdict had they had that information in front of them. That was excellent. Thank you. Very, 
very detailed and appreciated. One thing I, I noticed recently or, or within the, the, the past few months, I guess, is that there was a new law regarding the 60-day deadline for new evidence on PCRA cases. Has that now yeah. been moved to 365 days? That's a huge, huge development for the state. Um, before, if you found new evidence, you had 60 days, and 60 days in, in legal time is like tomorrow in everyone else's time. Uh, you have 60 days to get a PCRA, a new evidence PCRA, filed with the court. Now, this is very difficult often because you might find the new evidence uh, in, a, in an odd place, and it may take you uh, 40 days to even get an affidavit or a signed statement from the witness or from the person that you got the new evidence from or to get the new evidence itself. Uh, getting it in in time um, means almost certainly that you're not going to have time to consult with a, an attorney and have them put together a counsel petition. Uh, we've been talking for many, many years about uh, revising the PCRA Act, and one of the revisions that was requested and that was just put into effect is extending that 60-day deadline to 365 days. That is a much more realistic time frame. Oftentimes, when you get new evidence, um, as I did in, in a case uh, I handled uh, uh, almost uh, eight or ten years ago out of Dauphin County, um, the evidence has to be developed. Uh, in that case, uh, I was able to exonerate an individual who was serving a 77-year sentence for a home invasion robbery. Um, he had been sitting in his cell with, and received a, a new cellmate. And as they are like to do, they began talking about their cases and why they were there. And the cellmate uh, said, oh, hey, you know, I've heard someone talking about that case before, this guy named, and he gave me a nickname uh, or gave my client a nickname and said, you know, I've heard this case talked about. He was talking about this case. Well, the, the client contacted me, and I put out feelers to uh, the, the facility that the cellmate had said that he had been in when this admission was made, found the inmate who had made the admission. Uh, that took about 45 to 50 days. I talked to that inmate. That inmate said, yeah, I was talking to that other guy, but I got my information from yet another guy at a different institution. He gave me his nickname. I think the nicknames were like Gut and Giggles and whatever. So I went to the other institution and I put out feelers and found out who that person was. Um, that person then said, yeah, I was sitting in this facility with the person who committed the crime. The person who committed the crime admitted to me that he committed the crime and laughed about, wasn't it funny that this other guy went down for it? Well, that entire process of just following the, the line of evidence to get to the very end to find out who the actual person was who committed the crime took about 90 days by itself. Um, 60 days is all I had, so I had to submit the PCRA petition while I was still investigating. Uh, what I was able to later obtain is confirmation from the district attorney's office there that they, in fact, had received a CODIS hit uh, long before this, indicating that the guy that I identified as being the actual home invasion robber 
was in fact the home invasion robber based on DNA. So we were ultimately able to exonerate my client, but that entire process, the investigative process, took about 120 days. And that was moving at top speed. So having 365 days to actually do the work and do it correctly and thoroughly is really a a huge importance. Absolutely. I actually remember that case. I remember trying to serve the uh, person who did do the home invasion. He barricaded himself in a house when I approached him. Mm-hmm. And I remember that. You were on the phone with me at the time. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I, I I agree with you, and, and it's it's for the listeners. It, 60 days is so difficult. The, the inmates, sometimes they don't even know. Now, obviously, a lot of them become jailhouse lawyers and spend a lot of time in the law library, but some of them don't know that they even have 60 days. And then it takes them that much time just to try to find family members who can help um, – financially for assistance to find an attorney. So it, it really, 60 days is, has always been, to me, in my mind, so silly. So I am so glad to hear that it, it was moved to a year. It will make life much more um, doable for many, many of these cases. Well, ultimately, if the, if the true reason behind the new evidence PCRAs is to ensure that, that there's a just result, you have to ensure that not only is there sufficient time to do the investigations for these cases, but also that they're given adequate hearings in the courts. Right. Very well said. Well, I, I know that that took a, a lot of work by a lot of people because it's been requested for years. So kudos to everybody who was involved in that new legislation. I, I know that on, on several cases that we've worked in, in the past, there's... And, and, of course, on the news, there's always a lot of speculation of police misconduct in Philadelphia involving bad patterns, corruption, et cetera. Without disclosing any names or ongoing investigations, are, are you able to s- discuss some of your findings and some of the patterns that have been established over the last few years with some of the, the police mis- misconduct, especially in Philadelphia? Absolutely. Um, because my practice is... Uh, my appellate practice is pretty much limited to homicide cases. My experience is specifically with the homicide detectives unit out of Philadelphia. Uh, so that's the only only one I can speak to. I can't speak to vice or, or drugs or any of the other units. Um, having done these cases for almost 30 years, 31 years now, um, I started to see several years ago that there were a couple of different patterns and practices. Having started my career doing civil rights and understanding what was required to establish a Section 1983 pattern and practice, I kept that in mind with the idea that that there seems to be a somewhat widespread pattern. Uh, The pattern is significant for what we've identified. A couple of different attorneys, Todd Mosier, Jerry Brown, and I have identified as seven specific uh, behaviors that we're seeing. Uh, the first one is vulnerable. Uh, detectives will bring in individuals who they perceive to be weak. Uh, this could be juveniles, it could be the elderly, it could be individuals who've been injured coming directly from the hospital, uh, young females, mothers, grandmothers, individuals with intellectual disabilities. 
mental health problems, those sorts of things. Uh, second factor is isolation. Uh, the detectives hold the witnesses or the suspects for long periods of time, uh, often up until three days, three full days, in an interrogation room down in Homicide, which is currently eighth in race. Uh, when the witnesses or suspects request attorneys or family calls, those are denied or ignored. Uh, the third pattern is with regard to threats. The detectives threaten to send witnesses and suspects and or their family members to jail, to take away their children, take away their homes, their businesses, go to their places of employment and ensure they get uh, fired, those sorts of things. The fourth is verbal abuse. The detectives refer to the witness or suspect and or his family and friends by vulgar or demeaning terms, which I won't say. Um, uh, some of them get very close, get in your face, uh, and spit on the, the, the witnesses, or one particular detective likes to growl at the witnesses. Uh, the fifth is physical abuse. Uh, the detectives use various forms of force, including uh, slapping, punching witnesses and suspects, inappropriately or violently touching their genitals, throwing them against objects or into chairs, um, with regard to individuals who are wheelchair-bound or coming from hospitals, there have been allegations that they've uh, rammed them into lockers or to the side of, uh, like, like dodging cars with them. Uh, their sixth part of the pattern is manipulation or destruction of evidence, uh, where evidence just is no longer can be located or... Uh, Things like cash uh, that was said to be in the witnesses or suspect possession can't be found. Um, things like the homicide file no longer being able to be located, specific exhibits no longer being able to be located. Uh, up until recently, there was no retention policy in Philadelphia that uh, for uh, trial exhibits, which means that if the DA doesn't have them and they're not in the homicide file, most times defendants don't have them because they've had a series of different defense attorneys and appellate attorneys, and the file gets turned over so many times, things get lost, there's been shakeups, they get their cell searched, uh, materials destroyed. So it's very hard if you have a missing piece of evidence. Uh, the last and probably, in my view, the most problematic from just a straight judicial standpoint is the seventh part of the practice which is the supplying of material information to the witnesses. The detectives provide either a blank or perhaps a pre-written statement to the witness or the suspect uh, or would supply important pieces of information to the witness or suspect, often showing them other people's statements or telling them what's in other people's statements. Then the detectives demand that the witness or suspect sign the false statement in order to be released or in order not to be charged or in order not or in order to receive some benefit from their cooperation, such as a lesser sentence, money, or in a couple of cases, drugs. So we're looking at this seven-part pattern. And over the last several years, I have been receiving information from multiple different sources um, that has resulted in my putting together a database uh, of information related to those seven patterns 
and the various detectives and cases at homicide. That's incredible. And and I'm sure that will be really shocking by a lot of our list, listeners. But I always like to say I'm, I really am a proud supporter of all of our men and women in uniform and from our military to the police who protect us on a daily basis. And I'm thankful for their service. But it is like any other oh, profession. Oh, so am I. That, that, oh, so and I, I know you are. I know you are. The, the problem Absol- we have is that we have to ensure that everyone plays by the same rules. That our system Absol- is a wonderful system. If everyone, and that includes the attorneys, the defense attorneys, the prosecutors, the police department, everyone plays by the rules, we would have a system where I could honestly say I feel that the innocent don't go to jail unjustly. But when people don't play by the rules, which unfortunately is what we've found in this pattern, then we can't rely on the on the veracity and the uh, the reliability of our convictions. Oh, I I agree with you 100%. I'm in total agreement. And, you know, we find this in all walks of life, whether it's doctors, nurses, bus drivers, volunteer, uh, and private investigators. You know, there's always those bad apples. And when you have those bad apples, it just creates a lot of problems. And especially when you're looking at the ranks of, of law enforcement and you have those bad apples, it really expands the numbers because those arrests just sort of roll over and, and continue and, and those patterns continue and continue. Next thing you know, there's there's a lot of things that obviously come up in, into play in, during these trials and during your investigations. What do you think can be done to prevent and deter future misconduct by not only law enforcement, but we see it with the district attorneys, judges, and others in the judicial system? I mean, is, is there anything that can be done to to help govern that a little bit better? Well, a couple of things. Um, I think that there needs to be a new breed of, in this case, homicide detectives brought in with new training, training that, uh, and better supervision that doesn't permit this sort of thing from going on. Uh, the concern here is that, I mean, I've only been documenting since the, uh, the cases that started in 2000. I know that this actually is a much longer, uh, long-term problem it comes as far back as the uh, White Rabbit uh, era back in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, um, uh, with the Pulitzer Prize won by the Philadelphia Inquirer articles, uh, which discussed the, the abuse by, in homicide. You have to change the culture, and that means that you have to, it just plain providing new training isn't enough. You have to change the way that the detectives look at the cases. Rather than looking to close cases, they have to look for getting righteous results. Um, statistically, uh, there was a, was a uh, prior to between 2000 and 2017, there, the Philadelphia Homicide Department had a very, very high statistical rate of closure of the cases. And closure was important because, of course, that's where you get both your federal funding and you get your your statistics for the city, which is very important. And also from an officer's perspective, when you close a case, you go to court. And that means you spend time in court, which often means you get overtime. So it means a lot of extra money 
in your pocket if you're a detective if you close these cases. So uh, what happens is, is that from that period to 2017, then where there was a few changes in the law uh, that provided that the detectives had to at least offer to have interrogations videotaped. Um, they do it usually at the end after three, hours, three days of being interrogated, but that's another story. But once those changes went into effect in, I think it was 2017, I may be wrong, but uh, it, those numbers, the closure rates, went from the high 80s to the 30s, which is very, very important to look at because this is showing why they were closing cases. I mean, I don't think, it's, I mean, it's my opinion that it's because they were using these unconstitutional interrogation practices. Uh, recently, the pattern that I was discussing was found uh, in a case, Commonwealth versus Dwayne Thorpe, which was litigated by Ted Mo- Todd Mosier. Um, it, it was found by Judge Sarmina that this pattern of practice existed uh, within the Homicide Union as to a, a particular detective, and that was Detective James Pitts. Um, detective Pitts has multiple other cases currently. Um, that I am litigating, that other attorneys are litigating, and that individuals representing themselves are litigating. So uh, changing the training alone is not going to change the the atmosphere and the culture. We have to really start over with a different view of, of what our goal is. Is it to close cases or is it to ensure justice? Uh, I, I agree. I, I always feel like when we go into court, it's us against them, meaning the defense against the prosecution. However, it, this isn't a football game. You know, when, we, when we're working these and in the best interest of the law, both sides should be working together to identify the truth. Instead, it seems like someone's always trying to hide something that can lead to the truth, which is, you know, why is there such an a- adversarial approach from the prosecution, especially with the PCRAs? Exactly. If, there was a, if there was new evidence or ineffective counsel or a mistake made, there's somebody, bottom line is, if there's somebody who was wrongfully convicted or wrong, even, even in the trial stage and they were wrongfully accused, and, and we can help to identify that that was the case, that means that they're still the, the, the true perpetrator. And in your, in, in your case, it's homicide cases. That means somebody who committed murder is still on the streets while an innocent person is behind bars. And, and you know, that's exactly. obviously that's what it, I commend you for because, you know, people need to look at this big picture that, you know, somebody is serving time for a crime they didn't commit. But that also means that somebody's still out there that did commit that crime. And normally a leper doesn't change its spots like that. They're out there killing somebody else. Well, that's certainly very true. I mean, I have to say for the gentleman we talked about earlier who I was got exonerated from the 77-year-old home of Asia robbery, the person, if you recall, who we found and proved through DNA he had committed the crime, had gone on Facebook and had been bragging about what a uh, badass criminal he was and how this is the sort of thing that he liked to do. Um, so it's not, it's not unusual. I mean, I have other cases. Um, I have a capital case currently where we've identified who the true shooter is. Um, uh, but you, that's essentially what you have to do in order to prove these cases, not only establish that your client is actually innocent, which is a huge burden. It's so much easier to prove 
that you're innocent before you're convicted. Once you're convicted, all of that presumption is gone. And undoing a conviction is, is exceptionally difficult. So the burden is so high. It, it really is. And, and you're, it's so true, you know, when it, it, it is easier during the trial stage. But even during the trial stage, I know in the past two years, I got three people off of murder during the trial stage, and they served anywhere from 17 months to two years in prison, in jail, while they're awaiting their trial, and they didn't commit that crime. Those are two years of life that they can't get back. And in a lot of your cases, on the PCRA cases, the appeals, these these folks are sitting in jail for 15, 20 years, and they can't get that time back at all. Exactly, and, and it, exactly. It, it affects their family, too. It's, it's such a rippling effect because it, it affects their, their parents, their siblings, their children, if they have children. You know, they, they miss their kids growing up. And, you know, a lot of times, and, and I know one case in particular that I, I think we can both agree on, you know, we, we, we know who did it. Um, and the, the prosecution just doesn't want to look at it that way. They don't care. I feel that they don't care. That's my personal opinion, that they just don't care. I think that and there's the a problem. great need on the part of the prosecution to defend its own convictions. And that's on the part of the judiciary as well. We can't forget, and I tell my clients this all the time, that our judges are elected officials. Our state court judges are elected officials. That means that they are consistently viewed by the public as to what is their, not only their conviction rate, but what is their reversal rate. If it's found that they're getting too many reversals or they're not getting sufficient convictions, public pressure often does not allow them to be reelected. So judges have all the reason in the world to want to protect what they think are bona fide righteous convictions. So you have to, to get past not just the prosecutor who also has the, the general desire to, to keep their convictions, but also the judicial system. Now, with that being said, I have to, to give a kind of a caveat, because under Larry Krasner's administration as the um, the Conviction Integrity Unit and, and Mr. Krasner have been taking a much more active look at whether or not these convictions and the new evidence is just, and they're more willing to look at it. Um, that doesn't mean that the rank-and-file uh, district attorneys who are working in the PCRA department feel the same way as the Conviction Integrity Unit feels. And the Conviction Integrity Unit is very limited in its resources and is very occupied putting out fires uh, with various detectives who have been in the press, Detective Dove, Detective Nordo, uh, all of those. So while there's been, you know, some movement, it's just, it's, it's going to be too, too little. Um, there's not enough resources to get it done in time. And, and my serious concern is that uh, this is going to be, end up, will end up ultimately, you know, two, three, four years from now with kind of a knee-jerk reaction from the prosecutor's office back to the way it used to be of lock them up and keep them locked up. We don't care. Right. Now you're, you bring up some great points. So thankful for that. And, and it does. It becomes, 
a political move, politically motivated in a lot of cases, and and from a promotion standpoint too, because the more convictions they have, and and we all want to we all want to win. We're everybody's competitive, but when you know whether it's the detective in in vice or or white collar crimes wants to move to homicide, they need to show that they can do their job and get more convictions and obviously, you know, put in for different promotions or for the rank of sergeant or lieutenant or captain. And the assistant, same thing with the ADAs. They want to move from, you know, whether it's narcotics to homicide or, you know, they, they all want to get those notches in their belts, some for different reasons. And I think everybody, and I'm not saying that, again, that they're all bad <laughs> by no means. You know, we, we do have a great system. It's just a few bad apples. We need to find a way that, to work together to say, look, this person, here's new evidence that's provided, or here is the evidence. Let's look at it. Let's explore it. Because if that's not the person, then who is? So you brought up some great points. Thank you. My pleasure. On May 29th, I'm going to have Jeffrey Walker, who uh, he was a Philadelphia police officer. He was, uh, his last stop for many years was in the narcotics division where he served as a detective. Uh, up until his arrest on May 21st in 2013 for Hobbs Act robbery. He served three years in federal prison, and he's now working on righting the wrongs. And he's going to discuss the corruption he was involved with while employed with Philadelphia the Police Department, including his superiors and colleagues. And he states, you know, it, it's been going on for years. And people, it just gets passed down from from generation to generation within the police department and others look the other way. And so he is working and, and he's working with Mr. Krasner's office as well, trying to, you know, fix a lot of these things. But these are thousands of cases, not hundreds, thousands of cases where there was something wrong, whether it was corruption, whether they planted evidence, whether they beat somebody into a confession, um, as well as Brady violations where the district attorney's office didn't share that some of these uh, detectives were under investigation or indicted and so forth. So those are things that I, I know Philadelphia is working on cleaning up and, and I hope they do, but it's just, it, there's going to be a lot of cases that continue out of all the work that you're finding and some of the other colleagues as well. Well, I should also say that they are, the, the Philadelphia Internal Affairs is actively mm. investigating the pattern of practice in the homicide interrogation unit. Um, they have been really marvelous, in my opinion, which is, is, feels funny coming from a defense attorney's <laughs> perspective to, to say something so complimentary about the internal affairs. But, but uh, in particular, Detective Valerie Miller-Green has been really wonderful in being an unbiased and really neutral source and been a, as far as her willingness to go out and to do the work, to speak to the people, go to the prisons, talk to the witnesses, talk to the suspects, gather the information. Um, and it's my hope that, that the investigation ultimately will uh, corroborate what we've determined is this pattern of practice. And as you said, it's not something that, you know, is new. Uh, it's an ongoing problem, and it, and it surprises me, being an outsider, being from Colorado and coming to Pennsylvania, how few uh, Pennsylvanians and Philadelphians uh, know about, for example, the, the white rabbit. Uh, and when I'm referring to that is, is that back in the... Uh, about 30 years ago, 40 years ago, um, the homicide detectives would dress up in full white rabbit 
suit, including the white rabbit mask, and they would beat suspects and witnesses who are handcuffed to chairs or tables in homicide, uh, often using phone books. Um, this was something that was uncovered by a Philadelphia Inquirer uh, uh, investigator, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for the, his series of articles. This was during the period of time that Frank Rizzo was, was mayor. Um, that sort of behavior, people forget. I mean, when you talk to Philadelphians and you talk to the the kids that I come in contact with, unfortunately, um, my suspects and my witnesses, which have been getting younger and younger and younger as as time goes on, um, they don't remember any of this. But their parents do, and this is something that has been translated to them. So there is an inherent dislike for the police department and the fear of the police department and lack of trust. There are a huge number of, of really great police officers and detectives, but we have to build the trust back with our communities because we have uh, 30, 40 years worth of, of distrust that we are now having to, to uh, show is, is, and to change. I think you're right and it's not going to happen overnight this is a a perfect time for us just to take a break to uh give our sponsors an opportunity to uh be heard and give uh give us a minute or so and we'll be right back uh, after the break ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator, featuring stories and articles on current topics and issues written by professional investigators and leading experts in the profession. Real equipment reviews from top surveillance investigators with years of experience. PI Magazine offers investigative tips and practical advice for the newly licensed to the seasoned veteran investigator. Catch up on recommended sources, vendors, and professional services. Don't miss a single issue of PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, 
business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to is there really truth and justice for all to reach jeff stein or his guest today please call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or you can send an email to jstein at elpspda.com now back to is there really truth and justice for all welcome back and with me is terry heimball really educating and enlightening us on the judicial system and the work that she's doing in Philadelphia and a lot of the issues and concerns in Philadelphia. I'd like to kind of bring back what we were talking about and go over, maybe Terry, you can talk a little bit more about the Hassan Bennett case and how that's impacted things um, and, and why that had the effect or the outcome that it did. Yes, uh, Hassan Bennett uh, is a very nice uh, 30-ish young man who has spent a considerable amount of time in prison on a crime that he didn't commit. He was granted a PCRA hearing based on new evidence and representing himself, which is an, an unheard of difficult thing to do and not usually recommended because PCRA proceedings are very difficult. uh, The average attorney isn't taught in law school about what the rules are in PCRA proceedings. Uh, There's things that you have to learn uh, on your own and through working in it. And being an inmate, coming in without a law degree, coming in with a limited education, with very limited resources, the Cleveland Law Library, Mr. Bennett represented himself and just about a week ago excuse me, was able to get acquitted by a court of commonplace jury. This was really significant. This was a case where multiple witnesses recanted, meaning that multiple witnesses said on the stand of sworn testimony that they did not say what the detectives said that they said in their statement. This is one of the prime indicia of the pattern and practice that we talked about where a witness comes forward later and says, no, I never said that. I never gave that information or I wasn't there. I couldn't have seen that. And this information, false information that's placed in by the detectives into the police statement that is later used at trial even if the witness what we call goes south and recants and says something different, they then rehabilitate using the police statement. And most juries and most judges up until recently would have looked and said, hey, you know, we believe the detective over the, the witness or suspect. After all, they're a detective, right? And you believe detectives. 
So if the detective says that this was the, the accurate police statement, the verbatim police statement, well, then we should believe them over the witness who's recanted because, you know, the witness, maybe the witness is frightened or whatever reason. Well, that's worked up until now. But now that we have this pattern in practice and that the courts are starting, just starting to recognize its existence, they are not automatically believing the detectives as they have been in the past. So Mr. Bennett was able to achieve a huge victory, uh, not just because he was an inmate representing himself per se, but because he was able to establish uh, that these detectives didn't tell the truth and the judge believed the witness over the detectives. And that happens all too often, but he did a great job and very surprising with the outcome, you know, being pro se like that, but it's, it's the outcome is the most important thing. I know, um, Two, two weekends ago, I was in Chicago for a wrongful conviction and civil rights symposium that I took part in on a panel. Um, but the first speaker was Ryan Ferguson. And Ryan Ferguson was somebody who was convicted when he was 19 years old, although the crime happened when he was 17. And two years later, somebody wrote a statement that sort of mentioned that they think he did it. And it was an unsolved case for two years. Uh, so he was, bottom line is, uh, he was convicted and spent 10 years in prison before he was exonerated. And the, the governor had to get involved. But that served 10 years of his life taken away because somebody wrote a statement. Later on, they found out that he had some mental um, issues and he recanted it. But it's so difficult once that original statement is given when for those recanted statements to, to truly be recanted and, and understood why they were given in the first place by the jury. So that it's, it's a hard task to overcome, and I think it takes a, a lot of um, corroboration and work by the attorneys and the investigators involved in the case. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that there is a presumption, a legal presumption in Pennsylvania that recantation testimony is untrustworthy. So you start, and the PCRA, is, once again, I, I say the burdens are so difficult in PCRA cases, and you start from, from that burden of you have a recanted statement, so you're having to prove that your person truly is absolutely trustworthy. So you often have to have uh, phone records, prison records, other types of records to corroborate that and the recantation. Otherwise, alone, it's, it's not often enough. Uh, with this pattern of practice, I'm hoping that it will sway uh, the, the courts enough to at least consider the possibility that the detectives weren't telling the truth. It's a tough o- burden to overcome, but that's why we're here, to, to try to work on righting the wrong. Terry, a listener just emailed a question. If someone is found to be innocent after a wrongful conviction, is there any civil recourse for the exonerated subject? And is there any disciplinary or administrative punishment for law enforcement or prosecutors? Well, yes and yes. First of all, um, you certainly can uh, ask for, through the internal affairs process, for the individual to be investigated and disciplined and or suspended or fired. Whether they ultimately get 
suspended or fired often is a negotiated deal between the DA, the police department, and the Fraternal Order of Police is their union. With regard to civil remedy, uh, depending on the facts of the case, depending on whether you're claiming, uh, such as we are, there's the pattern of practice, or you're claiming an individual officer committed misconduct, you might be able to bring what is known as a 1983 suit. That is based on Section 42 U.S.C. 1983, which is a civil rights statute that allows for you to allege a claim so long as it's within two years of the date that you've been found innocent for malicious prosecution, malicious abuse of process, false arrest, false imprisonment, uh, excessive force if there was any. Uh, so certainly there is the, that civil remedy. Uh, it is very difficult to obtain uh, civil damages. Uh, however, it has happened. Uh, in the past, in fact, with regard to Detective Pitts, uh, there have been multiple civil lawsuits uh, that have been filed and have been settled uh, that have been resulted in over a million dollars worth of damages uh, on uh, being uh, paid on to uh, victims. Wow. Yeah, I, again, I think every case is probably individualized. I know in, in one of the cases that I'm aware of, the subject uh, or the exonerated was paid $1 million for every year he served in prison. So he you know, received several million, but it, it sounds great, but it's a whole time of your life that you can't get back. I mean, you just can't buy that back. I don't know what, really, it's difficult to put a price on that. Well, there is no price. I mean, I have clients who are uh, getting out for one reason or the other uh, and who missed their child's entire childhood and who are now grandparents, uh, who are now going to have to try and build a bond with their child so that they can have a bond with their grandchildren. Um, they, there's a lot of guys, um, I, I'd like to say Mr. Bennett, I saw yesterday, he already has two phones and he, he's mastered them quite well. Um, so it, the learning curve hopefully is not so significant, but I have other guys who have recently got out of prison who have to establish their identities, uh, who, uh, went into prison, had maybe used a false date of birth, and now can't get Social Security cards and can't get a driver's license or any sort of identity card so that they can get on Social Security or or get employment. Um, So it it takes away an entire section of your life, your family's life, and their family's lives. Absolutely. I know one person that I've worked with, um, he was diagnosed with PTSD after getting out, you know, just trying to acclimate himself to life outside of prison and it's not easy and you know they they go for counseling because they just don't know how to deal with society well my my daughter has a master's degree in social work and growing up with me she's always had an interest uh working with individuals who've been incarcerated and so uh, she has been uh working to help individuals who are recently released from prison get the services that they need, Um, get hooked up with the various programs if they need help doing so on the computer or helping them with that. Um, And there's a lot of other agencies that are out there that are are starting to to develop 
but we're going to need more and more of these because I think it's it's pretty clear we just can't keep incarcerating people uh, for their entire lives forever and ever and ever. It, the the cost uh, to society and the financial cost is just too great. That that's true. You bring up another point. You know, the United States we have more people incarcerated in our country than most any other country in the world, and and, and some of the some of the um, lengths of stay, I guess, in, in the fancy bed and breakfast, otherwise known as prison, are, are years longer than what other countries um, sentence their clients to or their, their defendants to. And it makes no sense financially. or From, from a penological standpoint, it makes no sense. We, we found that, that people who have served between 20 and 40 years in prison are significantly less likely to be recidivists. Um, as you incarcerate people, then they get older and older and older. Their medical costs get greater and greater and greater, and they become less and less likely to commit crimes. So we are paying more money to incarcerate people who are less likely to commit crimes. It makes very little sense from a penological or a financial standpoint. I agree, and I guess just trying to educate Every citizen on, on that uh, on that subject alone is is a big task, but that's something that we're trying to do so people understand, you know, what everything is entails. You, you mentioned well, we've that been, you're, I've you're, been doing that for years. I spoke in front of uh, some subcommittee of, in Harrisburg. This must be twenty five years ago, um, talking about this very thing, and it. I don't see a lot of movement or a lot of change. Uh, the 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 prison end of the justice uh, system is perhaps the slowest to change. No doubt. Absolutely. I'll keep that up. Hopefully, hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to see that change a little bit. You, I had a question. You mentioned what your daughter does. Is that in the Philadelphia area or does she service or, or work um, for inmates who, who get out of prison throughout the state of Pennsylvania? Well, she works primarily in the Philadelphia area because she does like to provide personal service and, and to be able to sit hands-on with the uh, uh, client to help them learn how to do this so they can access these services themselves should they need to. Also because there's confidential information that, you know, birth dates, social security numbers, things like that. Uh, so oftentimes it's, it's easier and better to do it in person. Um, but mm-hmm. she's just starting out doing this and uh, is on a, on a little bit you know, small basis and she probably, as time goes by, if the need is greater, she'll probably increase it. That's great. I have a client who's getting out after almost 17 years uh, later this month, so I'll talk to you offline about that. Before we Terrific. have about two minutes before we end the show, can you just touch on briefly how the defense, whether uh, how the, the criminal defense investigator uh, or the criminal defense attorney can use the media to their advantage, and what's the pros and cons, and when is it not to their advantage? Well, most times it's been my rule of thumb not to talk to the press. However, I have learned, particularly with regard to this pattern of practice, and the reason I'm talking today is because the more people that know about this, the more information we're going to get. Uh, 
The only way that I'm able to develop this pattern of practice is from input from other individuals, from other lawyers, from other witnesses, from suspects, from family members who've been through this, who have their own stories to tell. I think there are probably thousands of these people in just the Philadelphia area who have information that would help support this pattern of practice. And the only way we're going to get the court system to accept and to, to give this the, the, the uh, importance and, and, and that it needs to be, to be looked at individually in these cases and to, be, uh, and to be changed is to have a large enough uh, group of individuals that it can't be ignored. Uh, this is not something that has been happening just to a few people. If you look at the fact that there are over 300 murders committed each year in this city, and if even a small percentage of those have been subject to detectives who have used this unconstitutional pattern of practice over the last 20 years, there are thousands and thousands of wrongful convictions. I I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, our time is up. We got to close. Can you real quick just just give everybody uh, your phone number on how they can reach you in case they need your services, and we can continue this. Uh, I can. I'd love to have you back as a guest uh, in the in the next few months, so we can finish up where we left off. Thanks so much. Sure. Go to my website. My website is www.wronglyconvicted.net. Wronglyconvicted.net. Number is four eight four six eight six. Three two seven nine. Thanks so much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Terry. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week. 